wanted to base this evening's talk on a poem that I think many of you will already be familiar with. Um, an autobiography in five short chapters <laughs> by Portia Nelson. But for those of you who are not so familiar with this poem, I will read it. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. <laughs> so what I'd like to do is I'd, I'd like to draw some parallels between this poem and everything that we've been doing here on retreat, what we endeavor to do in our lives, and in some ways to, to trace the journey that we, we all make to get to a place where we truly feel we can walk down another street, a path of freedom, a path of kindness, a path of compassion. So, chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. <sighs> Anyone recognize that? I think this, this chapter describes the, the many layers of confusion that distort our capacity to live the life we long to live. A conscious life, a mindful life, an intentional life, guided by wakefulness and compassion and kindness. And it becomes so clear that without these, life just feels full of holes. And we can and probably have had the experience of, of going through our days, going through our lives, feeling confused, feeling that we live in a chaotic world inwardly and outwardly, where random events just seem to happen. And this first chapter, I think, refers to the sense of helplessness and powerlessness, even despair that we can flounder in. In relation, we, we sometimes look at our lives, you know, and we, we, we can feel stuck in places. You know, perhaps we have conflicted relationships and we might feel helpless to change them. I think this chapter describes the despair we can sometimes feel 
when we find ourselves acting and speaking in ways that we know really undermine our well-being. I think this chapter describes the despair we can feel when we find ourselves walking the same repetitive circles of obsession, preoccupation, anxiety, ending up in places far from where we would wish to be and yet not quite knowing how it all happened. And it describes the frustration that we can feel when we find ourselves being ambushed by emotional or thought storms. Essentially, this first chapter of the poem is all about being lost, about feeling lost. It really describes what the Buddha refers to as samsara, you know, or this kind of cycle of existence that feels a little bit kind of permeated by unsatisfactoriness. And in uh, the, the word in Tibetan for samsara actually literally translates as walking in circles. And it's really all about a mind and a life that feels governed by impulse and by unconsciousness. A heart or a mind that feels governed by whatever passing thought or emotion or mental state is showing up in the moment, you know, and we find ourselves swinging from happiness to sadness, from elation to depression, from excitement to boredom, you know, and these extremes that feel just so, in a way, sort of out of our control. And I think it describes a life where <clears throat> we, we sometimes feel that too many things are a gatekeeper of our happiness. You know, that just too many things are a gatekeeper of our happiness. Where we feel somewhat helpless before the events of our life, our mind, our body, our heart, so that there doesn't feel to be any refuge anywhere. It doesn't feel as if there's anything we can rely on or rest in. Feeling lost, I think, is a very painful feeling. Confusion and helplessness are very painful feelings. They're certainly not neutral. But I think those feelings of being lost and helpless really open the door to very power, even more powerful, painful feelings of self-doubt and depression. But it's acknowledged that this is also the place where the path of awakening begins. As we've already talked about on this retreat, the Buddha quite firmly put the path of awakening in the classroom of our bodies, in the classroom of our minds, our hearts, our lives. Certainly in this teaching never speaks about finding freedom outside of the difficult, but finding freedom within the difficult. Reb Anderson, one of the teachers who comes here to teach sometimes, he, he says, Buddhists don't practice in the suburbs of suffering. They practice downtown. <laughs> I think this teaching of imminence, as I mentioned the other day, is actually what made the Buddha very radical, a very radical teacher of his time when all of the spiritual seekers around him were really busy devising ingenious ways and strategies to subdue and overcome and transcend 
Their bodies, minds, and lives are looked at them with disdain and judgment. And then the Buddha was something of a genius in kind of holding up his hand and saying, you know, like, like, wait a minute. Like, wait, wait a minute. Maybe we need to pay attention to what's actually going on here. This was actually quite radical, to pay attention to what's actually going on here. Maybe we're being asked, as the Buddha suggested, to understand and make peace with and find freedom in this life rather than get rid of it. Maybe this world of 10,000 joys and sorrows is actually the ground of liberation and compassion. The Buddha very much acknowledged, I think, as we acknowledge, that in this, this fragile and unpredictable life, we certainly all meet our own measure of joy and loveliness, and we all meet our own measure of affliction and adversity. And none of us, no matter how ingenious we are in our defenses, can ever totally protect against that. So what is the kind of basic lesson of the path? What does it teach us? That affliction and adversity do not ask for aversion, resistance, or judgment, but for compassion and patience and acceptance and understanding. And the path of awakening, certainly as it's taught in this tradition, as it's taught in the work you do, is not concerned with manipulating the world. You know, it's kind of like seeing the futility of that one. Not concerned with manipulating the world, but with transforming the heart, our own heart and mind. And perhaps this is the very first step we take in the journey, is to look at this life, to look at this moment in the eye, and to know suffering as suffering, distress as distress, pain and struggle as pain and struggle just as we're asked to know the heart and mind of gladness and calmness as a heart and mind of gladness and calmness. And of course, intellectually, this all sounds so simple. In reality, it's a pretty immense leap for most of us. Is there like one of the great Indian philosophers put it, Nagarjuna, he says, what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? it isn't my fault I love this it isn't my fault it takes forever to find a way out of the hole now my understanding this is not a statement of irresponsibility or dismissiveness but it is true in so many ways that the ground of confusion that we sometimes find ourselves struggling with truly is not our fault. I doubt if anybody woke up this morning that this was a good day to be miserable. I doubt if anybody woke up this morning thinking this was a really good day to be unhappy or to be depressed or enraged or despairing. I don't think anybody would have come into a sitting today and said, oh, this is a great sitting to be lost in impatience and, you know, resignation and resistance. We did not choose to be born into the body we were born into. 
We did not choose to be born into the family or the life or the circumstances we were born into. Many of the holes we fall into have a very, very long lineage. You know, I come from a lineage of impatient people. You know, my father was incredible, is an incredibly impatient person. Apparently his father was even more impatient. And apparently his grandfather had a PhD in impatience. You know, and you can sort of trace this lineage. This is what certainly what I was born into. You know, that this is how you reacted to the world. You know, and it was a given that this was the right way to react to the world. That's even, I think, even more toxic, that that was the right way, the appropriate way to react to the world. We may see generational lineages of aversion, of fear, of anxiety, of doubt, of feelings of unworthiness that have been very well practiced over time. And it's so important, I think, to acknowledge that none of us are independent of conditions. None of us stand outside of the conditions into which we were born and raised and are exposed to in our life. You know, throughout our lives, we have been impacted by the lives of others, just as our lives and we impact the lives of others around us. The stories and the habits and the views of others have in so many ways, you know, often quite unconsciously been woven into and incorporated into our story and play a part, and it's so important just to acknowledge, play a part in shaping our own confusion or our own understanding. You know, we could ask ourselves, where, where did we begin to, to learn to fear or to doubt ourselves or to be judgmental? We were not born filled with views. We were not born filled with rage. These are lessons we have learned in our lives. And it's tr in truth, I think it's really no one's fault at all. Because everyone around us, too, has their own lineage of conditions. And yet fault, <clears throat> fault is where the mind easily goes, you know, thinking if I was, you know, if I was a better, if I was a more worthy, if I was a kind of person, everything would be marvelous and I wouldn't feel the way I do. And we really see how fault compounds suffering. But fault is what we tend to do with the terrible feeling of helplessness. You know, aversion is often what we do with terrible feelings of helplessness that feel too much to bear. Because it's almost like aversion or fault-finding is somehow some action of, you know, some self-assertion, some action of self, some, some way of responding rather than just sinking. If we feed the tendency to blame, then we tend to feed, of course, a corresponding opposite tendency. You know, if we feel the tendency to find fault with ourselves, be judgmental, then we will probably tend at times to feed the opposing or opposite tendency of striving and struggle. 
You know, you can sometimes see this in practice, you know, that if I if I come to a place where I feel really useless in practice, the next sitting I come with this warrior-like determination, I'm really going to do it, you know. Because if we don't have that, we just feel like we're going to sink. And so it's kind of like, you know, because fault is failure, isn't it? And so we try to compensate for failure by some success. You know, so, okay, I feel a failure, and I'm a terrific success because I've got two breaths in a row. I lose that, you know, now I'm a failure again. And it's this awful tension we can set up in our minds between success and failure. Or we can be still. This is another option. We can learn to be still, to see conditions as conditions. You know, the whole world of conditions flowing through our minds and hearts. We can see suffering is suffering, pain is pain. And sometimes in being still, we can really begin to soften, to open, to embrace, to befriend. And it, this, I think, really is the first great step in beginning to wake up. It's the first great step in feeling we no longer really need to be lost. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Pretend we don't see it and fall in again. Everybody can relate to this. I can't believe I'm in the same place again. You really see how again, this word, this one word, again, it's a saboteur of mindfulness. It's a saboteur of our capacity to begin anew. It's a saboteur of our capacity to forgive again. Doesn't it sound heavy? Again. There I am again. But it feels like that. We can't believe we're in the same place. You know, sometimes we can't believe we're in the same place of blame or obsession or, um, you know, aversion or despair. We just can't believe we're in the same place. We know what it's like. We know it's unhelpful. And I find this part of the poem so, so interesting. You know, this kind of perverse attachment we can seem to have at times to almost like falling in the same hole, pretending we don't see it, hoping it's going to have a different outcome. (laughs) Hoping it's going to have a different outcome. That's the amazing part. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to fall in the same hole of obsession and hope it has a different outcome. No, guess what didn't. You know, it reminds me of a story someone here told me when they were on retreat one time. You know, they'd been practicing for a long time, several months with craving. You know, really looking at craving. Really seriously, sincerely looking at craving. And then they said, you know, one day they suddenly found a thought of chocolate arose. And it didn't pass. (laughs) 
and and it just stayed, you know, all day long thinking about chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. And so the next day they got up in the morning, still chocolate, 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 you know. And they found themselves walking to Denbury to the store, you know, and all the way there there was this little voice inside saying, This isn't gonna work. <laughs> It isn't going to work, you know. And they said they got to the store and they bought the chocolate and they ate the chocolate. And all the time this little voice is saying, not quite what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and all the way back, walking back here, there was this little voice saying, I didn't really need to do that. <laughs> I didn't really need to do that. And Sometimes, you know, have you ever seen it like, like with, with an aversion attack? You know, like maybe somebody really annoys you here and, you know, you, you kind of cogitate about it for a while and then you decide you're going to be really helpful and write them a note, you know, for their own well-being to correct their behavior, of course, you know. So, so you want to write them a note, you know, please don't leave your shoes on the ramp, you know, and you're actually really peeved, you know. Um, so you write them, please don't leave your shoes on the ramp. But then you know there's something a little miss here, so you sign it meta. <laughs> you ever seen yourself feeling a little self-righteous about aversion? You know, a little self-righteous about you, The aversion is actually, it's so interesting, this combination of feelings, because the aversion actually feels quite miserable, but the self-righteousness in a way feels quite pleasant. <laughs> or seems to feel quite pleasant, you know? It's, it's a little bit, also sometimes a little bit like obsession, you know? It starts out, feels kind of neat, you know? You're kind of really obsessing myself, and then you can't get rid of it. And you suddenly realize it won't go away. I, I mean, I find it so interesting, this part, the, the sort of attachment that we can find sometimes to things that don't serve us well, because in some ways maybe they're f- serving self-view well, or maybe they're serving a sense of safety or preserving familiarity well. But I think it's a really good question to ask, you know, like sometimes when we know something doesn't serve us well, and yet we do it anyway. I think it's a really good question to ask what, what's really moving us there. Um, and it, it's, it's a complex one. It's a complex one, but we might say that we have divided loyalties. You know, we'd like to wake up, but there's something really that's hooking us here and keeping us quite sort of in this more confused space. But, you know, when we talk, and I've talked about this the other night, you know, because we talk so much about learning to release self-blame and judgment, but not learning to release discriminating wisdom. It's really understanding, there's so much understanding that suffering is not always random. And pain is not always random. That suffering that is born of conditions can be understood. And this is the work of this path, is to understand what inclines the mind towards suffering and struggle. And what brings it to an end? You know, we can see that whenever we're sort of pursuing something that doesn't serve us well, we are inevitable. It's not going to have a different outcome we're going to end up in the same hole. It's actually not going to have a different outcome. 
I think waking up really includes really knowing what causes sorrow and really knowing what brings it to an end. Pretending something is not happening is not a good option. You know, pretending it doesn't matter even. You, you know, sometimes we pretend it doesn't really matter if I entertain these few moments of aversion. You know, it doesn't really matter if I entertain these few moments of, of fantasy or craving. But maybe it does, because maybe we're deepening the habit of aversion. Maybe we're deepening that neural pathway of craving. You know, maybe we're deepening those ruts so that they do become places that are stuck. Patro Vimpoche, someone I very much admire from uh, the Tibetan tradition, He's, he wrote this thing that I, I find really actually helpful. He wrote, Do not take lightly small moments of heedlessness, believing they can do no harm. For even a tiny spark of fire can set alight a mountain. Do not take lightly the small moments of mindfulness, believing they can hardly help. For drops of water, one by one, in time can fill an ocean. Instead of pretending something's not happening, I think in the path of waking, wakefulness, we're really asked to be aware what we are feeding and nurturing and cultivating in our hearts and mind. That which leads us to fall into the holes or that which shows us the way out. And we apply discriminating wisdom in the path of letting go, letting go not of happiness and joy and calmness, but letting go of all the all-too-familiar habit patterns that drop us into the holes. I think if mindfulness teaches us anything at all, it really teaches us that everything matters, that everything is worthy of our wholehearted attention, that waking up is worthy of our wholehearted commitment. And I think that waking up and that wholeheartedness of commitment in this teaching is actually called the actualization of happiness and freedom. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. I get out immediately. I think I mentioned the other night how the Buddha called this path of waking up as swimming against the tide, not against the tide of our own views and beliefs and fears and doubts and habits. Sometimes a tide that feels so powerful feels so powerful. I think it's very useful to reflect on our own minds today, the thoughts, the emotions, the mental states that you've experienced today. Notice how familiar most of them were. I mean, you might have had one or two new thoughts this week. <laughs> Maybe a few more than that. But if you just notice how familiar they are, 
You know, like we're often not that surprised. I mean, sometimes we're very surprised if calmness or joy or happiness arises. But in the difficult, we're very rarely surprised. Oh, oh yes. It's kind of like these, these old friends just kind of walking in and out of the room of our mind. You know, oh yes, here's doubt, and here's aversion, here's craving. We see how much of them it is really habitual. And how often we get caught, actually, in the same circles of rehearsal or rumination or resentment. And how many of our psychological and emotional habits have really been with us probably for quite some time. Maybe even as long as we can remember. And I think some of our emotional psychological habits can feel so intractable and stubborn that she feel like that's who we are. You know, I have people who say, you know, I hear people say like, I'm a greed type. A greed type. Or I'm an aversive type. Or I'm a delusion type. And every time I hear that, I, I sort of get these quivers up my spine, you know. Because I think, how can anybody define themselves as a type? You know, how can we describe the complexity of our emotional, psychological world and sum it up and say, I'm this type? It is true, we might find ourselves a little bit more inclined towards greed than towards doubt. You know, we may have a certain bit more expertise in resentment than we do in... Uh, you know, uh, some craving, but that doesn't make us a type. You know, a type just fits us into some kind of pigeonhole which feels impossible. But I think we can see that if we repeat a certain patterns often enough, it's, they seem like a truth. They seem like that's who I am. As I mentioned the other night, what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. Now, when we see the intractability, the stubbornness of many of our habits, if sometimes I think we look at our minds, it just feels like a collection of habits. It sounds like very bad news, but actually it's quite good news. Because this is not about who I am. These are about emotional and psychological habit patterns. Now, the wonderful news, the really good news, of course, is that habit and mindfulness do not coexist. They do not. Habit and mindfulness cannot coexist. I think the very definition of an emotional psychological habit is that it is lacking in mindfulness. So every moment of... Mindful attentiveness, of kind attentiveness, is a moment of disempowering habit. Mindfulness is taking the self-view then out of the habits, where we begin to see, you know, a pattern or an emotion as an emotion, aversion as aversion. This is much more approachable than I am greedy or I am aversive. I think it requires immense courage, though to step out of the realm of habit because it really is stepping into not knowing. 
Many of our habit patterns govern the ways that we relate to the world in order to make the world safe for us. And that, that's so important to acknowledge. It's not that habit patterns are just things that we you know, have accumulated and they don't matter. And they govern our relationship to the world as a way of making the world familiar and safe to us. To step out of habit is actually to step into not knowing and that takes a lot of courage. You know, for example, if you look at some of our habit patterns, you know, we we know how to kind of use avoidance and 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 suppression, you know, to to try and fix the unpleasant or get rid of the unpleasant. We know how to use fantasy to smooth discontent. You know, we knew, know how to use willpower to try and overcome things we we don't like. Without habit, actually, we would be invited to see the world and ourselves and other people completely anew. And then we would be asked to respond to what is rather than what we think is. I think when we look at habits, they can seem like endless, don't they? It seems like, oh gosh, so many habits. Rumi, uh, I'm sorry, Kabir speaks to this really well. He, he says, Kabir wrote, he says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this, this world. I keep spinning out. I gave up expensive clothes and bought a robe, but I noticed one day the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I stopped being a sexual elephant, and now I discover that I'm angry a lot. I finally gave up anger, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. <laughs> I think it's, it's kind of really very important not to get into this mind, you know, where we're sort of trying to sort of eliminate, you know, where we've got this sort of shopping list of habits that we're, we think I'll get rid of this and then I'll get rid of this. It's more the sort of underlying habit of self-view that will take hold of anything, you know, take hold of anything at all, all in the service of trying to be in control. It's often all in the service of trying to make the world stand still for us, to, to not be threatening. And yet, unless we stand still for the world, we don't actually realize it's not quite as threatening as we believed it to be. And that's what we're really asked to do in the practice, is to stand still in the world and see actually it's not quite as threatening as it first felt to be when we are endeavoring to make the world stand still for us, to make ourselves feel safe. Personally, I think it's very, very positive. You know, I, f- I find it very, you know, very, very positive that 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 the in terms of tendencies that cause suffering, it's a very short list in the Buddhist tradition. I find that very encouraging. You know, it's not it's not a real long list. You know, it's pretty simple. You know, greed, hatred, delusion. <laughs> it's not bad, isn't it? I mean, that's good. I mean, it's much better than having some one of these kind of one of these big shopping lists we have for ourselves, you know, that we could write a whole book about our tendencies. Let's shrink it a little bit, you know, and let's just talk about these kind of primary tendencies, these tri- primary habit patterns of, of greed, hatred, delusion, greed, ill will, delusion. This is workable. It's a short list. 
So what do these habits actually ask for? You know, because you can pretty much see that every other habit pattern is some kind of offshoot of these three. Hatred, fear, you know, greed, insufficiency, delusion, just being lost altogether. Everyone's sort of story, people were asking, you know, about sort of some sort of metaphor for greed, hatred, and delusion. So the story, you know, like, like what do greed, hatred, and delusion look like? And they said, imagine being a, going to a party, you know. Someone who's really kind of really got that habit pattern of greed is going to walk in the door to the party. They're going to be, look about, who do I want to talk to? You know, what kind of food have they got? How good is the wine? You know, how many, you know, contacts can I make tonight? You know, the, uh, walk into the same party with aversion, you know. I don't want to talk to anybody. You know, what am I doing here? All these people are miserable. Look at the crummy food they supply, you know, and the plonk from the, you know, littles, you know. The delu- delusion would probably go to a different part, go to the wrong party. But it's kind of seen how these kind of feature in our lives. You know, anyway, that was... So what do these habits actually ask for? Well, exactly what we cultivate in our practice, in our work, compassion, curiosity, mindfulness, we're really reteaching our hearts to walk down a different path. It has a path that has a beginning, it has a path that has a direction, and it's a path that has a fruition. And in many ways, we are reteaching our hearts their loveliness. We are reteaching our minds their loveliness. There's a small piece of a poem by Galway Canal. He says, The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower, and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. It is so helpful to, again and again, as we've really been encouraging here, to look beneath the stories and to see the threads of the habit patterns, to know them as habit patterns, to know that those habit patterns are the forerunners of our speech, our actions, our choices, and to surround those threads with mindfulness and care and kindness. Begin to see that the habit patterns that feel so intractable and historical can begin to soften, and it's really a practice. You know, in that moment when we maybe want to, you know, find ourselves write that judgmental note to a yogi, you know, maybe instead we say, yeah, actually, may you be happy. That, actually, that moment does matter. It really does matter. It doesn't mean that the habit of aversion never recurs in our lives. But we are, but in that moment, we have liberated the mind, the heart, from the pattern, the tendency of aversion. And that moment really does matter in terms of reteaching our hearts their loveliness. One way that I see this path is that it is a movement from choicelessness to choice to another dimension of choicelessness. 
The first dimension of choicelessness is where many of us start, and I'm sure you see it in many of your clients and patients. You know, it's the first chapter where our lives and our bodies and our minds feel, feel governed by impulse and reactivity. It feels like we have no choice. It feels like we're just stuck in the habits. And we begin, but then we begin to wake up and be more aware of the ways we're responding, the ways we're relating. We begin to wake up to the possibility of bringing more intention, more mindfulness, more kindness. And we are moving, actually, from impulse to intentionality. And I see this, this is one of the biggest learnings in mindfulness, is to move from impulse to intentionality. Because that is to move from reactivity to responsiveness. I think this is what we are teaching ourselves. It is what we are teaching patients and clients. It's about the possibility of choice. That nothing is a life sentence. Which brings us back to the fourth chapter. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. In deepening the landscape of mindfulness within our own minds, we begin to know, first of all, the holes that we are prone to fall into. But we know that falling into the holes is just one of the possibilities available. We know that with wise effort, with wise mindfulness, we can begin to walk a different path. It's not a path of avoidance or resistance or aversion, but I think we come with insight to be unwilling to walk down pathways that we know lead only to struggle and confusion. We actually learn to withdraw our consent from participating in falling in the holes. Many examples of this, you know, you might have seen it here on the retreat. You, you hear the bell calling you to a sit, you know, and you may have a moment of resistance and aversion, thinks, oh, I'd much rather take a nap or read a book. But it is a moment, and actually it's only one moment, and you show up. So in that moment, we are actually not feeding the historical pattern of aversion and resistance. Maybe you show up for breakfast, you don't have the yogurt you liked yesterday, and maybe you'd love to write a note to the cook wondering why this is so. Or maybe you cultivate the willingness to be with things as they are. You might see a judgmental thought of yourself or another arise, and you can see that that judgmental thought is opening this door to all the history, this historical trail of how I've never been good enough. Or we might in that moment open another door of kindness and acceptance. We're walking around the holes. We're walking around the holes, not because the holes are bad or wrong, but we see they only have one outcome, which is to reinforce struggle and sorrow. I think walking around the holes is a very big shift inwardly from helplessness to confidence. And I cannot even tell you how important I think confidence is in this path. 
you know. I mean, I know when I began to practice, I had no confidence at all in any sense of possibility. But actually, my teacher had a whole lot of confidence in all of us disheveled hippies who didn't, you know, wondering what we were doing in their mud huts in the Himalayas. They had total confidence that we could all be Buddhas. I found that amazing. (laughs) But isn't it true when you have clients and patients walk into your clinics, you know, how little confidence there is and how when there's no confidence, there's no ground and how actually you are asked to offer that sense of confidence that this is possible. That this is possible. You too, this is possible for you too. That is an amazing gift. That is an amazing gift. You know, you cannot expect, I don't expect people to walk into retreats, you know, without doubt, filled with confidence that they can be liberated and all the rest of it. Doubt is huge, but doubt is always debilitating. Doubt is always paralyzing. And sometimes we don't have the, the confidence in ourselves is something that builds through experience through walking around the holes. Isn't that amazing? I walked around the hole today instead of diving into it. Ah, isn't that amazing? Hmm? Every moment of doing that is building up the block, is a building block of confidence. And, uh, you know, although we maybe don't talk about it so much, but confidence is a very central piece in my understanding of shifting, making major inner shifts. You know, in actually believing, you know, trusting in in possibility rather than believing in impossibility. You know, which is what so many difficult mind states breed, is the belief in impossibility. So walking around the hole, every single small moment of walking around a hole is actually a moment of instilling confidence. And confidence enables and deepens and enables first the very small shifts and then the very big shifts. It's a movement out of helplessness to a greater sense of freedom. It requires effort. It requires again and again a renewal of intention. But every time, but we begin to sense emerging a mind that is actually a friend. And you know what? All of this that feels so very, very effortful in the beginning does, with practice, become less effortful. It becomes more naturalized. All of this that can feel so difficult and hard and demanding in the beginning, actually, you know what? It starts to be joyful. You start to actually celebrate the moments you walk around the halls. You start to actually appreciate them, to realize this is a process, really, of falling in love with being awake. Falling in love with being awake. It's a very big thing to fall in love with being awake. Chapter 5, I walked down another street. If you remember, I was talking a little bit about this movement from, you know, the choicelessness of impulse to the choice that begins to come with intention, with confidence. And then another dimension of choicelessness and something, this is something many of you touched upon from your small groups today. This sense of embodiment, this sense of embodiment, this sense of the naturalization of everything that we love. You know, where actually 
being unmindful, being not present, really doesn't actually really look attractive at all. You know, where it really just doesn't hold any interest anymore. Where somewhere there is the beginning to be that emergence of this sense of naturalizing, naturalizing wakefulness, naturalizing kindness, naturalizing compassion. It doesn't mean that none of these habit patterns ever, you know, that they never arise again, but they hold no authority. They hold no authority. They are simply seen as habit patterns born of conditions unfed. When not fed, those habit patterns hold no authority. Those habit patterns hold authority only when they are given the authority of self-view, of identification, of belief. Otherwise, they are habit patterns born of conditions that you can see, you can be mindful of, you can bring compassion and kindness to, and you know what, they pass right on through. You know, at the heart of the Buddhist teaching is the third ennobling truth, the truth of the end of suffering. The third ennobling truth of the end of suffering doesn't exist outside of the other ennobling truths. You know, that there is suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there is a path to the end of suffering. But it is opening to the very profound sense of possibility. You know, the Buddha speaks about this as a boundless, immeasurable heart, the radiant, illuminous heart, where there is no longer being governed by ill will or craving or confusion, but a heart that rests in a pervasive compassion and equanimity. We may hear this as an impossibility, but this is the other street. This is the other street we are invited to walk down. And I, I find it so helpful to remember that, um, you know, the Pali that we've spoken about a bit here, it's not a language of nouns. It's not a language of states. It's a language of verbs. It's a language of process. So when we talk about an ennobling truth, the third noble truth. This is also speaking about liberating the moment. And I actually, I think that's where this practice that we're doing here really come, brings a sense of immediacy. Because it's not, you know, this liberation way down the road there, some distant horizon, maybe never arise. It's about how do we liberate the moment? What does it mean to liberate the moment? What does it mean to liberate the moment from the grip of habit, from the grip of self-view, you know, from the grip of resistance? How do we liberate the moment? And I think this is something to remind ourselves of, not to think of liberation in capital letters or headlines, but this very, very immediate sense, relational sense to where we are, to how we are. How do we liberate a moment. I want to end with just a piece of a short poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. She said, when someone invites you to a party, remember what parties are like before answering. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. Trees, the monastery bell at twilight. You have a new project, it will never be finished. Walk around feeling like a leaf, knowing you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time.
if you have just a moment quietly and then we'll go for a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.